the selectivity of reproduction and how like the nation states get into seeing bodies as not their own, right? But doing it for someone else. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being colonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode with friends and loved ones. This is Season 3, Episode 3, Revolution in the Kitchen. This was a digital conversation and panel between Nazila Kivi, Luisa Prado, and myself. The talk is part of a digital panel series curated by Ida Benke. And it's part of the Biennial Alt Copenhagen 2020 Patterns and Resistance, which is a Danish biennial that unfolds within messy knots between crafts, technology, between privilege and histories of resistance, between care and community. And it brings artists and contemporary artists run and alternative exhibition spaces from across Europe. Nazila Kivi is an independent scholar on reproduction and decoloniality. She's also an editor, essayist, and co-founder of the feminist magazine Friction. She teaches gender and among other courses about witches and cyborgs, gender, race, and resistance. Luisa Prado is a Brazilian artist and scholar who examines issues of decolonization, gender, and sexuality through herbal medicine, performance, and video. Prado is one of the co-founders of Decolonizing Design Collective. During this conversation, we talked about scarcity, excess, witches, reproduction, and more. Hi, everybody out there. Really happy that so many are joining us uh, in this heat, this weather. I hope you all can stay cool and stay hydrated, so take care of yourselves. And I'm very, very pleased to talk with uh, Edna and Luisa today because uh, they're, um, I just felt this enormous joy of looking into their work and their uh, research and their artwork. So we're going to start with hearing some uh, more broader and wider ideas and concepts about decoloniality, which is from my experience, at least in my vicinity, is that a lot of people are not quite familiar with all of these um, concepts. And then bring into to, um, play how decoloniality and how coloniality is connected to reproduction, care work, and race. And then from there, we'd really like to hear Luisa and Edna tell us more about their specific work, because that's really where it comes to play. How do you decolonize or how to, do you undermine these colonial ways of thinking? Before we start with that, I would really like to each of you also tell in your own words a little bit about what you work with and what is the things that you mostly are concerned about at the moment. If we start with you, Edna. Wow, first, first of all, thank you so much for organizing this panel, especially in such a difficult moment. I want to acknowledge and give space for people to sit with the fact that there's a, a pandemic, as well as a lot of uncertainty for people who might be facing racial strife, anti-Black racism in particular. And so I, what I would say is that I am a historian by training, but also a recovering biologist. So I have a degree in biology as well and public health. And in this current moment, I've been thinking a lot about which bodies get care, particularly those bodies in the European, African, Caribbean, and North American context, which have been disproportionately people of color, Black people who have passed away or have been affected by COVID-19. And for those of us who've had family members tested positive for COVID, it's a large burden and it's something we have to sit with. And so in thinking about the panel and how I do my practice, it's a practice that is predicated on thinking about my ancestors, thinking about the health inequalities, thinking about how we can have a politics of empathy and how that politics is something that isn't necessarily new, it's mutated, of course, it's transformed. And to also work against traditional archives, but things that provide people with joy. So in thinking about music, poetry, 
food, eating, or even just black joy and how revolutionary that is. Uh, and it's not to discount the oppression that exists, but to work between the spaces of recognition of trauma and of hurt and pain, while also seeing that those are not the only ways that we move through the world. So as a historian in this moment, as an art worker, as a writer, uh, this is definitely a time for a deep reflection, deep thinking, and also just as a black person, black woman, looking at black feminists, old and young, so from Angela Davis to Adrienne Marie Brown, Charlene Carruthers, Ruthie Wilson, who are calling for abolition and so much more. I think that this gives a, a, a little taste of what I'm doing uh, and hopefully it could be uh, the foundation, especially collectively, to imagine and build a, a different kind of world. Thank you so much. Uh, look, uh, looking forward to, to, for you to elaborate more of your work. Um, Luisa, can you also tell us in your own words uh, what is the most uh, actual and, and concerning issues for you at the moment and, and your background also? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, thank you, Ida, for the invitation, Nasila for uh, moderating this panel, and Edna for being brilliant, <laughs> and uh, everyone for attending. Um, so in my work, I, I look or I, I'm very interest, interested in looking into tensions between technologies uh, related to birth control and fertility and bodies through the lenses of feminist and decolonial theories. Um, in, in my PhD, which you can download on my website, I um, analyze how these technologies become articulated in ways that perpetuate the colonial matrix of power. And uh, it's interesting because um, I, I'm an artist and uh, this process of doing the PhD uh, a few years ago has informed the way that I, that I uh, do my practice, the, the themes and the uh, issues that I approach in my artistic practice. And during the PhD, it was very useful to do kind of a deep dive into how the control of reproduction is a fundamental feature of coloniality. But it was also very emotionally taxing work um, because it also meant years of looking into histories of, of really deep trauma and pain and years of looking into all these kind of past and present accounts of the exploitation of people in the global south and um, and also in the north, uh, people of color um, for uh, for uh, essentially fundamentally for the continuation of the colonial project. So after finishing uh, the PhD and transitioning into uh, working full time as an artist, I I decided to kind of shift my focus and start looking into practices of radical care. And one of the things that I had come up uh, or um, come into in my research was the use of plants and uh, herbal medicine in general as uh, a practice of resistance really uh, to these, these honestly, like these enormous structures that shape so many aspects of our lives. So in my artistic practice, I've been engaging with plants and with herbal medicine ever since um, for the past uh, two years um, in this project that I've been calling a topography of excesses. In this project, I, I kind of start from this um, examination of uh, all of these issues to really question the idea, and this is why it's called the topography of excesses, question this idea of uh, people whose fertilities are the subject of control, that is people who live, let's say, at the blunt end of the colonial structure of power, but um, being framed as simultaneously incomplete, lacking the humanity represented by whiteness, and also excessive, too numerous, too sexual, too fertile, too emotional, just too much in general. 
so yeah, uh, and starting from these reflections, I've been kind of developing a series of uh, projects under this umbrella over the past couple of years. So yeah, that's kind of a general overview of what I've been doing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, and uh, we will get into that uh, specifically. I would like to, because I, uh, I teach also um, decoloniality in my course and uh, the history of colonialism. And uh, my experience is that many people who are new into this, they, are, they have quite a lot of doubt, doubts about how, what is like the difference of colonialism and coloniality. And I think maybe we could start with saying that. And the reason I, I want to, to start with this is because very often uh, we think of colonialism as something that used to be in the past and as something that was uh, just a matter of physical occupation of like the occupying countries being physically present in, for example, in Latin America and on the African continent. And now we say, well, now they left, so this is over, right? So I think it would be really interesting to try to distinguish between colonialism as a, like a physical occupation and then the whole coloniality, which is a whole mindset. And um, I've seen you, Luisa, writing about this. So I can you just... Uh, outline how do you understand coloniality um yeah i think it's it's definitely an important thing to i guess keep in mind and to um to clarify at the beginning of a talk like this one so there is often and i come across that a lot in in my teaching in particular there is this perception sometimes especially within here in the confines of Europe and amongst perhaps people who have not uh, experienced that, I think it's, it's harder to see. But there is this perception that colonies are something of the past. And that also, uh, and that um, the, the project of, of colonialism ended with the, with the so-called independence of former colonies. And that is a misconception, uh, unfortunately. Um, the project of coloniality, and this is why we uh, also use the term coloniality, because it is a, a wider project that, um, and here I'm going, perhaps it's useful to uh, quote a few names so people can, can research. Um, for instance, Aníbal Quijano, I am very much indebted to the work of uh, Latin American scholars who have um, discussed and, and written ex quite ex uh, extensively about these issues. But for instance, Aníbal Quijano points out um, that coloniality as a project or uh, what he calls a matrix, the colonial matrix of power, spans a number of things, a number of facets and aspects of reality and of life from of course also that includes the occupation of land but that includes also that project of domination also includes uh the domination uh an epistemic domination for instance who gets to determine what is knowledge who gets to uh, produce what is recognized as knowledge and that is a very central question i think um the question of knowledge and the question of um, whose, whose knowledge is recognized as such. Because from the moment that you, that you take or that you don't, uh, you create a structure where people's, people's knowledge is not recognized. And that I think ties quite well to uh, the work that I've been doing with herbal medicine. So uh, there are, uh, you create a hierarchy of knowledges, right? In which ties, of course, and this is also a fundamental um, tenet of coloniality, there is uh, the colonial project creates a hierarchy of subjectivities too. People who are recognized as people and people who are not recognized as such. And that lies, I guess, at the heart of the justification of Europe's justification for for the crimes of enslavement and of genocide 
that happened during the occupation, but that continue to happen to this day. And uh, yeah, I guess that's like a very rough kind of overview on that. Um, so yeah, it is um, a, a project of domination um, of subjectivity, of knowledge, of, of sexuality too, the determination of, uh, of what gender is, what sexuality is considered acceptable or not. And it, it also passes through the domination of fertility and reproduction, of course. And I think something you said is very important is about hierarchy because uh, it's 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 very peculiar to coloniality that difference is always put in a hierarchical order. So what you say uh, about a hierarchy of of epistemology is that there are some types of knowledges that are seen as like valid. Uh, true knowledge, and then there are some others. For example, the herbal, or or if you're going to back into which which history, which is also very related to to, for example, Latin America, because that's a part of what you say the dehumanization. You can see a lot of paintings from the 16th century that indigenous people were portrayed as uh, cannibals, as eating each other, and as kind of uh, sorcerers who did witchcraft, and that was supposed to show their like non-quite humanness, while maybe the knowledges that were there were, were, were uh, killed, as to say, like, or, or erased, and which is what we call epistemicide, right? So I think that hierarchy that you say is, is really important to, to keep as a red thread within that. From there, um, we go to talking about reproduction, just to just to get it into a local context here, and also about like dehumanization. I just want to give an example that I seen into a very very like very today's example of how people are treated differently is that um, in Denmark, the coronavirus was uh, initially brought here by affluent people who went to ski holidays in Italy and the, the first people came from that area right and even within a short period when uh, people were told like it was better to to stay home in spite of that a lot of people chose to go on holidays anyway like go to Italy go to Greece go to Croatia uh, and there had been some uh, outrage about it, but not that much, and nobody talked about their ethnicity or heritage or anything. But the last two, three days in Denmark, there has been this massive uh, harassment and bullying of people of Somali origin, because there has been a, a like some for some reason somebody has uh, done uh, ethnicity statistics on who has been infected and of course like not not only the right-wing parties that you would expect this from but even like from the you know social democrats and stuff are are saying that this is, must be a cultural thing about the people of somali origin and i think this is like a very very like real example of how people are dehumanized as carriers of disease because it's not it wasn't the Somali people who went to ski holidays in Italy and brought it back here or it wasn't like you know it's really interesting that and also if you think about the social implications of who is uh, who cannot work from home right who who are bus drivers who are healthcare workers who is like in the first line it's often uh, racialized people and you know people of different classes so all those things just disappear and then it just like bears into just like your heritage decides that you're a carrier of disease which is really I think really saying for how really telling for how you can like really dehumanize people and within like especially people who are in in the care work right so I think that's just the just just one example and this brings me to to talk about also the question of reproduction for uh, some years ago but so this picture says uh, on the left side says have you counted your eggs today your chance of becoming a mother is uh, twice as 
high when you're 25 as, as if uh, when you're 35. And on the right, it asks, uh, do they swim too slow? 40% has lower sperm quality. It can take some time to become a dad. And this was really targeted to, this was, this was an official campaign. So this is from the fertility center at the, the Central University Hospital uh, in Copenhagen, together with Copenhagen municipality. So this is kind of like a state pronatalist campaign. And if we look at the other one, shortly after that, um, a traveling agency did this thing together with, there was also this program said something like bang for Denmark. And this is uh, said like, do it for Denmark, do it for mom, take on an active holiday for your mother and the fatherland. So this was about that they are not born enough babies in Denmark. And this makes me, um, brings me to talk about like what you said Edna about the selectivity of reproduction and how like the nation states get into uh, like seeing bodies as not their own, right? But doing it for someone else. And you can see on the picture, it's a clear white child, right? And it's not like nobody is, uh, is, is thanking the minorities here who in some cases, right in the beginning after migration, have a higher fertility rate than the native population. Nobody says, oh, that's a good thing. No, because people are often shamed for that. So there's this really hierarchical relation to reproduction. Um, so I would like you to, to comment and also like on continuation of what is coloniality and how it is, how it is connected to race and reproduction also with this in, in, in background, Edna. I'm not sure if you've been reading some of the Anglophone news over the past two weeks, but whether it's The Guardian or Glamour magazine, there have been multiple studies to show that since March, the desire to reproduce globally has decreased. From the United States to Germany to Indonesia, Counts by people with wombs or who are of uh, reproductive uh, age has generated this lack of desire. And a lot of it has to do with um, people feeling that they don't have the funds and that with the climate crisis, etc. And there is a longer piece in The Guardian recently published uh, on the fact that what is often called depopulation has been going on globally actually for at least a decade or so, um, to the point that the deep, the depopulation of Europeans, particularly white Europeans, is seen as a so-called crisis, as you just demonstrated. But that of uh, black and brown people is actually strongly encouraged, and this ties to, as you know, 18th century very racist ideas by Malthus, and you know the book *The Population Bomb* and the, the discourse around that. Um, and so one of the things, and I'm, I just finished an article on this very question of black fertility and what is it, the history of that and how does that enter into people's popular imagination. And one of the things that I found is actually there's a, a myth of black hyperfertility, if anything, black women statistically are, um, if we look at the data, less fertile, especially in the United States. However, the ideas and the sayings and the writings about fertility with black women, black queer people is tied to false perceptions. And one particular piece that I looked at recently uh, was a 1932 edition of the Birth Control Review, which was started by Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood and also eugenicist. And uh, the thing that that particular text had said was, quote, the presence of merged conditions of the Negro is due in large part to the high fertility of the race under disastrously adverse conditions. Now, I kind of expect Margaret Sanger's um, to write this. However, the, the, what was very difficult to read is that the African-American sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois in that same issue said, quote, even then birth control was secretly exercised by the more intelligent slaves that basically making note that the black people who were more intelligent could control their reproductive capacities and those who were not, uh, in his view, um, not. And I, I bring this up because 
Du Bois' assertion was grounded on black respectability, even though he's often, um, uh, how do you say, uh, compared to uh, B, uh, Booker T. Washington, who was more about respectability, and he, yet he was still part of an elite class at the time uh, who equated childbirth, fertility, and reproduction with uh, alleged intellectual cap um, capacity. And what is a further assault is that the reproductive journey of black people is tied to the dark history of forced reproduction during slavery, forced sterilization during Jim Crow. And you know there were eugenics boards in places like North Carolina that were present and active until 1977. And of the 7,000 people that they had sterilized in the state of North Carolina, 5,000 of them were black. Only 200 victims of them are eligible out of the 7,000 for compensation. It's such a, a complicated history, obviously, and it's a, a history tied to slavery, racism, colonialism. So when one sees an ad that, like you, that you showed um, with this kind of uh, celebration or encouragement of, of white Europeans to reproduce, and then there's this other history of people literally being sterilized or told that they're less intelligent for reproducing. You can't help but think that there's a double standard and that that needs to be challenged and interrogated. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because those uh, forced sterilizations in the U United States that you mentioned are just the ones that were like actively visible and measurable. But then there were the whole like much wider spread uh, conditions, for example, to receive welfare or to have your children in schools was like to have your tubes tied, as I said, or to be on birth control. So there was also this like more invisible kinds of of, of eugenics targeted against the black and indigenous people in the United States. So that, that's a really thing that is so recent and many people don't know. So there's also this, when we talk about the racialization of reproduction, this is what we're talking about is that there are some, some peoples, there is again this hierarchy of reproduction, right? Some peoples, there are some people who are like, they're like in quality, right? Instead of like saying the quality of these people is better than others. So we have, there are too few Europeans, we should have more, even though there is a big migration going on that could, could uh, make up for, for the population. Like even, I mean, when you study uh, demographics, you know that this idea of replacing population is completely outdated in itself. It's not necessary in any way. We don't need like, um, to, repro to reproduce the population in that way. But it's also about like putting value on some people and putting yeah, a hierarchical value on some people. And I think um, also uh, you, uh, Luisa, have written also about in continuation of this, just to have another concept clarified for our audience, is that you have also talked about and teach in biopolitics. Um, can you also like shortly um, explain to those who are new at this what you understand about biopolitics, how it plays within these topics that we talked about of the racialization of reproduction? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess one good way of, uh, of bringing this up is perhaps since it ties so much with what Edna just mentioned, um, this whole conversation about the racialization of reproduction, um, it's very present, for instance, and I'm going to give another example, uh, in how the birth control pill itself was developed in the 1950s. Um, it's, of course, uh, it is a medication that is very necessary for a lot of people, but when you look into the history of the pill, um, it is a very fraught history um, that shows so well this process of racializing reproduction. So um, in the 1950s in the United States, it wasn't really possible for, um, for the scientists who were interested in developing this with the support of Margaret Sanger, because she was also involved in it. Um, it wasn't really possible for them to uh, develop such a medication in the United States um, because of um, the laws in the mainland at the time. Uh, mostly uh, laws that um, curtailed the development of medications 
um, that could deal with anything relating to uh, to fertility and sexuality and reproduction and so on. Um, and uh, because of that, the people involved in this like very early phase of the the pill um, was uh, the people that were involved with this. Um, I think it's it's very interesting to even see their own comments and and look through the historical documents that you have about that process and see their own words. Um, the main funder of the early stages of the development of the pill was Catherine McCormick. And according to her, they needed a cage of ovulating females to experiment on, which to me shows very well and ties to the, to the conversation on biopolitics, shows very well the dehumanization of uh, certain people. Um, and uh, to just not to, to go super long on this, because I could talk about this for days, um, but the pill was developed um, by testing on people who were living in slums, in mental hospitals, in prisons. So all these kind of disciplinary enclosures, since we're going into biopolitics and it's such a Foucauldian um, concept. Um, but um, people who were living in all these disciplinary enclosures, and not only that, but people who were living in those enclosures in a colony, in a place that to this day is a colony, which is Puerto Rico. And the justification for that, for, uh, for testing on those people. And the, the birth control pill trials were part of a series of programs um, of sterilization and birth control that were deployed in the island in the 1950s. So it wasn't even the only program like that. Um, but um, the, um, the trials yeah, um, were, were justified by the perception that there were too, too many people in Puerto Rico and that the poverty that the island faced was the result of uncontrolled reproduction. And here I think I, I want to go to Angela Davis, who says in relation to that argument, as if controlling reproduction would create more resources, particularly in places that have been subject of ceaseless colonial plundering. So having introduced the, um, the question with, the, with this, um, so biopower or, or let's, let's go into, into the term biopolitics. So um, biopolitics is uh, basically uh, in, at least in the way that Foucault um, theorized it was um, something uh, was a shift in the, in the exercise of power that he, which is something I do not agree with, um, uh, located basically with the rise of the modern nation state in the 18th century. So according to Foucault, um, sovereign power uh, until up until that point was um, the dominant form of power. And it was a power that was exercised through um, deduction. So the rise to seize assets, goods, and products, what basically the feudal lord could do, right? Um, and uh, this right, the sovereign power was formulated as the power of life and death, which was basically the right to take life or to let live. But um, now what's uh, interesting to me is um, Foucault um, theorizes that there was this moment of transition um, between this older form of power and this new form of power that is biopower. And uh, what he says is that then in this moment, um, he, the, the right to subtract changes because with the rise of the modern nation state, wars were no longer waged in the name of a sovereign who must be defended. And they were waged instead on behalf of the existence of everyone, entire populations mobilized for the purpose 
um, of the nation. So um, this changed everything. So instead, then, uh, new power formation centered around the right to foster life or disallow it to the point of death um, emerged. And uh, so what's, what's interesting to me uh, to, to think about that is that Foucault locates it um, within this very European context. But if you look at the colonies, uh, all of that was already happening there. Um, this, uh, because also biopower happens uh, on the scale, both on the scale of the population and on the scale of the individual, right? Um, it is a power that is exercised on a macro and on a micro scale. But uh, Akhile Mbembe uh, uh, very rightly points out that the plantation was the, the, the fundamental locus of, or, or the origin of the exercise of, and then he proposes a new term of a necropolitics, of a necropolitical power. This is very um, useful for what we're going to continue into your practices because uh, Especially like uh, and and since Mbembe, the the Mexican uh, um, feminist philosopher Sayak Valencia has also elaborated into like this power, uh, like exerting power through the active creation of death. Um, and of course, we could talk a long time about just necropolitics in itself. But I think the the way it's uh, going to be useful to to talk about your works is this specific the hierarchy first of all. The reproduction and 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 reproductive work, which is also like uh, social reproduction and care work, and also specifically the creating life and death. And when if you could see uh, capitalism as like this active creation of death or active creation of scarcity, uh, active creation of hierarchy in order to be to to be able to to make like for example um, profits out of um, free labor so that then you can say from here we can get into your practices of how do you involve your art in the creation of life for example and the creation of care right so um, um, if we start with uh, with just continue with what you said about your uses of herbal uh plants and and herbal medicine can you talk a little about um one of your specific works that we talked about how, how do you how have you used plants and how have you used this ancestral knowledge in order to 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 create a different way of of uh, knowledge about about care so for the past couple of years as i said i've been developing several projects under this kind of larger umbrella of a topography of excesses. And um, what was interesting to me is that I, after I started really uh, going deep, uh, diving deep into researching plants and plants that um, somehow uh, are used for, um, for let's say managing reproduction and fertility and i say that in both in terms of um promoting uh, used as contraceptives or abortifacients or on the other hand i'm also interested in plants that are used um, for enhancing fertility uh plants that are considered aphrodisiacs and so on um so when i started researching these plants uh it dawned on me at some point that a lot of them were actually foods. And uh, the question here is that um, plants have many different parts, right? Um, the leaf and the stem and the root and the fruit and the flower, they might all have different effects on the human body. So at some point I realized that uh, this plant that uh, I'm looking into here is actually a type of wild carrot. Uh, or um, how the the um, there's uh, this beautiful plant that I'm fascinated by, whose bark is used um, as an abortifacient, 
but the the pods it has pods pretty much like uh, beans or or peas or it's pretty much it's the same family um and those pods are edible actually um and they're eaten in mexico uh so i started seeing that pop up in in different places and of course um and this is also a question of like my own personal interest i i always loved cooking and i've always wanted to actually make it part of my artistic practice and it made so much sense to start then experimenting with cooking meals around these ingredients uh meals that were not i mean um the idea is not to uh have like contraceptives or anything um but with the normally edible parts of these plants so i started um doing these uh meal performances like uh, i've been calling them performance dinners um with all of these uh ingredients and centered around all of these things um in the beginning i was very focused on ingredients that were quite literally um uh affecting reproduction in some way um but in the latest ones and of course that series of <laughs> of events unfortunately has been stopped by covid um but uh, in the latter uh, versions of this dinner, uh, I've also started thinking about even just the act of making food and serving and sharing food uh, in a meal as an act of creating life, because it is, you know. And, and talking about reproduction, of course, is something that is much wider than just talking quite strictly about um, medicine. It is talking about the creating the conditions for life and that includes shelter and housing, that includes um, access to, to nourishment, to proper nourishment, um, that includes access to healthcare, uh, to all forms of healthcare um, and, and a number of things. Um, so I started uh, in the latter versions of this uh, of this series, um, I've also started uh, experimenting with uh, with uh, making meals, for instance, focused on uh, specific ingredients that um, are an important part. For instance, I'm from Brazil, um, an important part of the basic Brazilian diet, and that they are like basic forms of nourishment. Edna, you also work with healing and care through plants as well, and also through cooking as a, as a trauma healing. Can you talk a bit more about that and maybe especially tell us a bit about your latest exhibition, Cartographies of Care? First of all, I want to echo the many things that Luisa brought up in terms of decoloniality from the before and to just really emphasize how it's an active process on undoing uh, so many of the uh, oppressive regimes that have existed and, and it, it calls for repair and restorative justice which uh, of course people are fighting for um, like globally especially in places like South Africa, the United States and England they tore down statues and it goes on and on and part of the reason I bring this up and that I think that it is ongoing is that the question on how to create life and how to heal in my opinion is predicated on, on freedom freedom on a broad sense but also in the way that tries to take away the shackles of the plantation slavery life um, and I, one particular quote that I, I find quite fascinating is Orlando Patterson's Freedom, where he says, Freedom began its uh, career as a social value in the desperate yearning for the slave to negate what for him or her and for non-slaves was a peculiarly inhumane conditions. This very much relates to you know, Sheila Mamemba's work on necropolitics and what the sovereignty of the body mean and how does that get reproduced through health and, and other forms. Uh, but it also relates to uh, my interrogation of history of science and medicine, not just in the broad sense that I've done with my work on epidemics in the Middle East and North Africa, but also in thinking about how that relates to my family history 
as uh, descendant of slaves and the eighth generation of someone who was free, specifically because of the Haitian Revolution. My parents are Haitian and our ancestors were forcibly brought from West Africa to Saint-Domingue, the western part of the island of Hispaniola. And at the time it was producing 40% of the world's sugar, 50% of the world's coffee. And it, it, was, it was, this is the conditions that led to that revolution. At the same time, uh, the revolution began with slaves. Most people might know the names of Toussaint Louverture, who helped to lead the revolution, but very few people know about Cecil Fatima or even Bukaman. And Cecil is particularly interesting because she was a, one of the few women who appears often in pictures. She matters is because her participation was through the voodoo tradition. So voodoo, uh, Haitian voodoo, which borrows from syncretic West African traditions, uh, on the one hand, uh, very much is part of valorizing uh, the spirits or laws, um, some of who deal with fertility, like Ursuli Danthor and uh, female reproduction or love. Um, but it also comes with uh, the use um, of certain herbal remedies, uh, some of which um, have been tied to things that originally, at least by people who are, were coming from North America and Europe, were seen as superstitious um, and not necessarily healing per se. And I'll just share this one scientific article that was published in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine some years ago, where they found the use of medicinal plants by Haitian immigrants and their descendants um, uh, there were about 50 or so herbal remedies. And some of those things, I was like curious, like what, what are they? How did they come about? Why did the, th the teas that I thought were just not necessarily effective actually did have medicinal elements to them and were grounded uh, on scientific research that eventually was very, very much part of my lineage. Um, so it wasn't just that we were part of, or at least our ancestors were part of a legacy uh, for black liberation in this kind of broad sense of freedom, which then helped to inspire people in the rest of the Americas. But there was this other element that the knowledge that was produced, very much carried by women like Cecil Fatima or the women in my family, came with evidentiary-based medicine. And a medicine that if we think about, well, where, where do we get most of our access to health care? It happens in a domestic space, in our homes. It doesn't always happen in the hospital. Um, it happens through preventive measures like drinking teas and like what Louisa was also mentioning, that it, uh, for people who where access to abortion is becoming increasingly illegal and or expensive, having those alternative methods, as yeah, Louisa's research has shown, is so pivotal for exercising agency over one's body. And so it's in that respect that I think that my work and the cartographies of care was looking at African diasporic people, along with my collaborator, who's a Nigerian Ghanaian, which is um, produces jollof wars, but that's another issue. Uh, but she uh, is uh, Debbie Onoha, and she's a filmmaker and cultural anthropologist. And in our work here in Berlin, we interviewed black people, transgender, gender non-binary, uh, women who come from and were born on the African continent in the Caribbean, North America, and in Europe. So people who were Afro-German as well. And we tried to ask them, how do they receive care, if at all? And there were a wide range of uh, uh, comments about that. Some people, similar to the stories I heard in my family, use herbal remedies, others, use other methods uh, of healing, going to a, a doctor, but it, it really ranged in terms of what care meant, how it was defined, in what language. Uh, for some people it was about witchcraft and I loved it. <laughs> I loved that people could play with uh, the different methods that give them the strength to feel secure, even when, especially when, the world doesn't necessarily always value black life. And so Part of this, the, the kind of intellectual and creative journey for me in thinking about care, healing, and life formations in a broad sense is integrating these histories that might seem already done. Like C.L.R. James wrote a history of the Black Jacobins. That's, that's already been done, so we don't need to know more. Actually, no, what is the fe Black feminist intersectional perspective on that? What does it mean for people 
in, who grew up in shanty towns in Haiti to also know about South African anti-apartheid struggle. How do people find themselves in Berlin and speaking multiple languages then create new versions of health and healing within a medical system that may not always be the most compassionate to them. This is part of a work of, of creating new archives by asking the questions to people who are often left out. We know about Franz Fanon, we know about uh, Ami Césaire, but not everyone knows about Claudia Jones or Fanny Lou Hammer. And so part of the, the work of doing art and a kind of activist-oriented, feminist-oriented, intersectional-oriented, and also anti-capitalist-oriented work is to collect our stories because if we don't do it, no one else will. Yeah, and it, it, it makes me think about this word of um, epistemicide is that there have actually been, uh, I mean, I would call it scientific knowledge because as you said, it's evidence-based because it's been based on hundreds of years of trial and error of, uh, of medicinal and herbal plants uh, or medicines and, and people knew how it worked. So it's, it's kind of a scientific knowledge that has been actively erased and some of the what you do that like decolonization or decolonizing um this type of knowledge or care and what uh walter mignolo for example would call uh demining or undermining is like to 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 dig deep and find what has been actively erased is is part of that I see as your practices. And um, speaking of technology that we have talked about technology, I just uh, want to talk about like how technology is, uh, is connected to, to knowledge and also to food and to cooking. I just want to bring out a very uh, concrete example. I have these uh, uh, mice, uh, corn tortillas here that my partner is Mexican and has been looking for these for a really long time because they finally found them and had them sent from Berlin, I think. Um, and I think something that's really interesting about this is that the indig indigenous people of uh, Mexico and the Central America and the Caribbean knew after like for, uh, had the technology, the knowledge to do the process of nixtamalization that is uh, a, a way of treating uh, corn with uh, soda or lime water that uh, opens up a lot of nutritional value and actually makes you be able make you um, be able to absorb um, proteins from that right and something that is really interesting and that is an example of a very active epistemicide is that when uh, Christopher Columbus came to to the to to the new continent. He uh, brought it brought corn back with him to a lot of European uh, countries, and I mean it spread. But they didn't bring the technology of nasalization with them, and for a for a while where the corn was a main staple became a main staple for a lot of european population they started developing diseases of how because they didn't know that techno uh, that process and that that technology and they didn't uh, respect that so they started having this like a uh, rachitis and other uh, protein deficiency diseases so i think it's interesting like when you said edna what makes people sick when you talk about this is a very very concrete example of how colonization or theft like actively makes people sick and and because they brought it with them to a lot of african uh, uh, countries without that process and then they started making other people sick as well so i think this is really interesting to to look at like these uh, examples that are still at play can you show us your video and or do you part of what is important about this video is uh well okay i'll, I'll start off with a tragedy which is to say that my brother was shot last year in 2019 and and there are a couple other people particularly black men in my family, because yeah, that's what we all are, um, who were either incarcerated or other things, and reckoning with the fact that black bodies and black people were living very precarious lives, not because of something endemic to our skin or our body. It's not like our skin attracts bullets, but because of systemic racism, 
who knows when or how our lives could be taken away. And as part of the, the archival work or archive making that I spoke about, not just with the Cartography of Care project here in Berlin and looking at the African diaspora here, um, I am trying to, as best as I can, to record and to document the work and the, the issues of people in my family who are also documenting and sharing herbal knowledge. So this is a film that my aunt and myself in Miami, Florida, shortly after my brother was shot. Oui. 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 One thing I, I will briefly show before um, I take off the screen is this is the article I was referring to that specifically looks at not just the Haitian uh, herbal plants, but also how those plants ended up in Cuba, a neighboring island in the Caribbean, and the ethnographic as well as um, biomedical research that was being done to track uh, the Haitian diaspora, not just in the United States where some of us end up, but also in Cuba and how that has also impacted uh, the traditional healing practices of, of the region. Um, I'll briefly just explain what was in the video, which is to say that it was myself in the, for the background not being seen uh, speaking in Haitian Creole with my aunt. Um, that's the language, the first language that I learned. Uh, so that's my Motosprache, as they say in German. And um, just asking my aunt, like, what are some of these plants and what are they useful for? And her matter of fact, being like, okay, this is for abdominal pain. This is for menstrual pain. This is for if you uh, have a, a certain kind of ailment. And for her, it's just everyday knowledge. But for me, it was, uh, it was now becoming a process of discovering little by little the things that might seem as part of the background um, are very much integral to the medical healing that she she does and and in my family I think as you saw in the the writings it has been such an important point for me as a kind of revolutionary act to speak Haitian Creole because for a long time and growing up in the United States in an Anglophone place where my language was seen as problematic, not a real language, it's not written, all kinds of, or now it is, but it, that it was, it was a source of shame. And so being able to use that language to talk about um, what our ancestors were able to pass down to us and to use those materials in a proactive way has been a part of the practice. And then to see, as you saw with the journal article, Cartesian ways of knowledge that is explain and justify some of those plans um, 
uh, provide some reassurance, but I don't necessarily need legitimacy from <laughs> the biomedical <laughs> institutions, but it still uh, helps, uh, especially uh, if we want to decolonize and democratize knowledge in a full epistemic sense. Yeah, and it's really interesting with the, the connection between care and language because uh, so you can you are, can provide care in a certain language and if you are uh, hindered in talking that, for example, your mother tongues or, or your, your native language, then you lose some kind of sense of care or sense of uh, safety and, and, and security. So I think that's also really uh, part of decolonizing is to to stick to the language for for those who are able to at least right because for for many it has been completely erased and it's not possible my name is edna bonom and you're listening to the decolonization in action podcast and this episode featured digitally based voices who live in berlin germany and copenhagen denmark I would like to express my gratitude to the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, as well as Mozilla Kivi, Luisa Prado, and Ida Benka for curating this series and allowing us to share our research and artistic practices for the biennial. As always, there is a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us.